I am thrilled to announce that Enactor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have part two with artist Simon Birch. I normally don't do long-form introductions because I find them to be a bit redundant and uh, masturbatory for myself because I try to keep the attention on the artist. And today I wanted to do something a little bit different and let the world know how much I believe in Simon Birch. I met him in 2017 at the 14th Factory, you heard in part one in the interview. And the experience that I had in that facility, the gallery space with the work, I can't describe it in words because they haven't invented the words to describe how amazing it was. I've, um, I've dreamed of, of creating art one-tenth that good myself, and I'm an actor, but I, I love art, and I love pieces that move, and I love experiences, and I love what it means to sit in a room with a bunch of strangers and look at, at, at pieces of art. And Simon is someone who really, really took his time to let me know how he did it and to share with you guys all the wonderful things that he's done and is going to continue to do. I believe in Simon more than I believe in maybe even myself, you know, because at least he's got a track record and, uh, It's been tough for me as an actor coming up on 155 episodes of this show in the sense that here I am still with a microphone talking and interviewing people that I love, but have yet to be able myself to do and and book work for the thing that I love. And yes, I know we had a pandemic and I lost the year, but it's tough. 
And hearing Simon's story about assembling the 14th factory and the amount of no's that someone that's a hero of mine is still hearing, it grounded me and it buoyed me. And it made me realize that the fight is not futile. It's just tough. And Simon, I have so much love for you, man. You You've changed my life. And it's weird getting to know someone over Zoom. But uh, as you can tell, this is another 90 minute for part two. And I'm really grateful. And I ask that you guys listen with an open mind. And uh, when it's done, Google Simon. Check out his work. There's some amazing things coming. He gives a little bit of... uh, clues about what that might be and um simon birch from the bottom of my heart thank you i love you brother to the future i apologize for the long intro guys here it is part two with simon birch simon birch here we are for part two how are you doing brother i'm good and i'm glad we had a little break between part one and now because it's given me cause to reflect ah Good. I am. I, I think sometimes we need that lens. I've had a few guests say so, that. What happens is when you have an interaction like this, it's, you know, I'm, I don't do interviews, you know, I'm, you know, I don't have these kind of um, formal conversations, which become public. And you sort of, what's interesting is sort of, when I thought back to our chat last week, I'm like, fuck, why did I say this? And why did I say that? That sounds so selfish and, you know, so, um, uh, what is that word? Entitled. Because I realized that I was sort of talking about my problems of, of, you know, the hurdles I face, trying to raise money, with um, trying to get opportunity, with not being interviewed or recognized or feeling like, you know, I couldn't sort of push through those barriers in the art world. And I, over the weekend, I thought, God, that's how stupid am I to not recognize? How lucky am I to even have a passport or a friend? <laughs> or have ever sold a painting in my life. And I feel awful now that the first part of our discussion, you know, I sort of talked about a lot of problems and, you know. Well, that's what this show is designed for. It, it, it is called An Actor Despairs. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that anything, if anything, I thought you were being too hard on yourself because like you're incredible. And I think everything that you said was some of the most moving, like I think the world, you know, obviously this episode hasn't come out yet, but I think the world is really going to respond to it because, you know, one of the things that we hear in, and not just acting, but in any kind of form of art is the perpetual no. It's no, no. And even when you have everything. That's the normal of creative industry, your world in acting and film and mine in art. The no is normal. Yeah. Fortunately, the media gives you examples of creative success, whether it's an architecture or film. That, that, but that's the interesting thing. That, that I came away feeling slightly guilty and thinking, oh, my God, I've been sort of whining a bit about the problems I've had and, you know, the things I've had to deal with. And, and other people would look at me and yourself and go, look at you. Good-looking guy. You've got a podcast. And you're you're good-looking. I'm, I'm a moderately attractive bro. You're the fucking... Let's not get into just, you yeah. know you know, flattering each other, right? Clearly, we, we like each other and we're enjoying this interaction. Yeah. The point is, a lot of people would look at you and go, an actor despairs. You're not despairing. You've actually been through some awful things. You've overcome them. 
And you now have a platform where I didn't realize actually, because when you contacted me, I looked a little, a little bit of your podcast and whatever. I just kind of flicked through it, wasn't paying attention. But over the weekend, I looked at what you were doing more carefully. And I was like, how is it you, this guy that's like essentially a despairing actor that yeah. <laughs> somehow has got over a hundred people who are not the A list actors by any means? But some very notable people. Yeah. Very notable. <laughs> you know, what, what I really loved about reviewing some of the people you've been to, Bill Pullman and, you know. Oh, my Bill's Alex the best. Toby, I was like, wow, it's so interesting. Those are actually the people I would always like to talk to. I don't want to talk to Brad Pitt. Me either. I mean, I he's love Brad. Good. I do think he's great. Yeah. I, won't tr- I won't trash Brad, but that's, the, it's, I, I don't mean to interrupt you and I apologize, but the reason I created this podcast is to give what I call Originally, uh, I've never revealed this on the air, and I don't want anyone to think this, but it was the original title of my show was going to be Undervalued Artist of the Week. But I didn't like that because that kind of like negs the guests right away saying they're not valued and they are valued. So I kind of I shifted the name and, you know, made fun of I went to Strasbourg, which is the method. And he wrote a book called An Actor Prepares. And I punned an actor despairs. So oh, for my, my, yeah, well, that's, that's a clever thing, but most people wouldn't get it. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you did, and 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 that is my very goal. So hearing you say that is like, you know, it's it's like me telling you what I experienced in the 14 Factory. You know that this is what I set out to do. So thank you, brother. That means so much to me. Yeah, I just I find it fascinating because actually the the people you interview that they're, they're far more interesting than people. No discredit to Taylor Swift at all, or uh, I don't know, you, you pick your A-list, you know, actor yeah. or actress. You know, some people, they are the lottery winners and they slide through and they just suddenly overnight, they're Tom Cruise. And, yeah. and good luck to them, no problem. As long as they don't come out assholes, good luck to everybody. And, but some people struggle through their careers. And, you know, I was thinking about that guy that played Magneto in the X-Men. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ian McKellen or, McKellen. or Michael Fassbender? Yeah, Ian McKellen. Yeah. And I, I, remember, I remember seeing an interview with him where he sort of said he'd basically been acting his entire life on stage and screen, but he never really broke it until he was in his 60s and suddenly he's a superstar. And I remember him saying, I wish it happened 40 years ago, but better late than never. But that's, you know, some people like Ian McKellen never get an X-Men. They never, they never cross that line. And that's normal. What normal is, you're a brilliant singer, you're a backup singer for Taylor Swift, but you never really break through. And every now and again, and Ian McKellen, there's a few artists I know that are similar, who in their 60s or 70s or later in their life, they suddenly popped. And the the point about this is, everyone's journey is so nuanced, right? And and Taylor Swift isn't a privileged um, anything. Taylor Swift's journey is Taylor Swift's journey. Yeah. It doesn't mean she's a bad person or a bad singer. You can't hate on her because she got lucky and got the opportunity and advantage. I was reading, like, uh, what was the other one? Britney Spears was another one and Justin Bieber was another one. Who'd be got famous young and stayed famous their whole lives. Yeah. And then I read about the Disney kids who became drug addicts and died at 17. Totally. And that's more normal than Justin Bieber. But we try to compartmentalize these people and their journeys and then apply it to ourselves. And, you know, uh, these things are so relative and they're so complicated. And we make these generalizations. I I, I thought about this when I talked to you last week. I made some generalizations about the art world, opportunity, success, and who makes and who doesn't. 
And you just can't generalize because life is so complicated and that extends beyond creativity to race and gender um, and sexuality and, and all these things. It's like politics. Everyone knows that no one who's really good goes into politics because you can make more money going into private industry. Some good people do go into politics. It's about power. It's not about money at that point. But but it's, again, you can't, we do make generalizations. Like McDonald's is is a terrible restaurant, but it's the most popular restaurant in the world. Um, I'm I'm curious for you, Simon, because like you are the the first fine and, and contemporary artist that I have had. Um, you know, for actors and for musicians, when they start, you know, for an actor, I don't even want to say Wonder Woman. The goal is just to be in a movie or a play, whether if it's any notoriety, it's just to work for a musician. It's to either if you're a session musician, you know, play for jazz bands or if you're trying to start a band to create a record for you, Simon, when you picked up that paintbrush and you started, was there even a like the goal is to be in a gallery. The goal, or was it just... You know what, that's the weird thing, right? It's still to this day, when I'm painting a painting from day one to day to now, I'm 51 years old now, right? So my, every time I pick up a paintbrush, it's the same, it's just, it just comes out. It's just this weird obsession. It's, I'm not thinking about selling it, but anyway, seeing it. I don't think about any of those things. It's only when I kind of go into the real world and I get bills to pay and, uh, and then I'm looking at the media and I'm, then you get so distracted. But I'm, when I'm making, making paintings or I'm making art, that's all it is. That's all that's going on. It's just me and the canvas and the paint. It's very, sounds very sort of romantic and sentimental, but it's absolutely honest. That's nothing I'm, matters I'm, from a painting. It's weird, I'm, yeah. I'm curious to ask you because I've spoken about this with actors and I feel like we're at the decline of, of movie stars, you know, and, and people making the kind of money they made. But we've seen a similar phenomenon happen in the art world where, you know, actors and artists and painters, we used to be vagabonds and derelicts and the rejects of society. But within the last hundred years, as capitalism has grown and media and corporations now suddenly, you know, as we've spoken about in the last episode, there's phenomenons like Mr. Brainwash and Space Invader and, and people, I'm, I, I, I'm not saying anything bad about him, but like Shepard Fairey and the, the commodification of art in art versus commerce, where suddenly you can become a celebrity as an artist, you can become a millionaire as an artist. And I'm curious for your thoughts on that's new. I mean, I or maybe you know it's happened to other artists. I, I'm my art history isn't the greatest. Maybe there's been some 19th century people that did really well, but I don't know. Correct, correct me if you think I'm wrong. You know. Oh, well, I would say, look, I wouldn't talk about bad about any artists unless I know them personally and they're good yeah. to me. And I'm and I'm not trying to talk bad. I just mean the sense of money. This, of this kind of money being in this kind of... Well, what yeah. we do know is that most artists share insecurity where they're trying to make work and, and looking for validation and, you know, they're trying to pay bills. So, so every, every artist really has a great deal of vulnerability to deal with and, and, a, and, a, and a huge world of commerce that competing against. It's, you know, being an artist is a really difficult thing. You make this thing and there's no salary, there's no paycheck, there's no... Um, ladder that's clear to, to climb up so you know as an artist it's a really difficult job because you the insecurity is rife but but also art is clearly an enormous industry just like yeah. film there, there is a formula to success in art the right galleries relationships networks Sotheby's Christie's all that yeah and then work can become commoditized and people are invested in it 
and um, they want that work to stay the same and it can become a status symbol to have you know this thing that looks like this on your wall that is recognized you know so there's a there's an awful commoditization to the art world but but that's but that's the negative side and i meet artists i have a dear friend here in hong kong movana chen who works in paper she was at the 14 factory in los angeles what she does is she is an art a sort of audience participation artist we asked people come to my exhibition bring your journal your diary your favorite book we're going to cut it into strips and we're going to weave it together into larger works mm. that become huge tapestries or she even makes these kind of like paper bodysuits that are that are made out of this these kind of woven stories of hundreds of people's personal books journals and trust me she's she's a brilliant creative is she in the art world yeah she's represented by a gallery called flowers yeah uh, which is a very respectable gallery but she's the real fucking deal. And that people like that give me hope. And that's who I work with. It's like in general in your life, you know, when you realize you have the choice yeah. who you have in your life or not, you can cut people out. You can say, just because we went to school together, I'm not going to go to your fucking birthday party anymore because you're an asshole. Yeah. And it does extend to family. People obviously go family first. Not if your family are dickheads. Well, you don't get to choose your family. I, and I think that's imperative. And I chose Movana Chen yeah. as one of my little sisters, and she is a genuinely good person and um, a, a wonderful human being and a brilliant artist. Is she in the top 10 artists at Sotheby's or Christie's? No. Will she be? Who knows? I hope she does. She seems to survive off her, off her work, and her work is brilliant. And, and when I, I just stick with people like Movana Chen and my other good friend, Peter, Peter Yule, Y-U-I-L-L, who's Canadian. Peter just makes good work. Yeah. He's got an insecurity. He really does want to make it. In my mind, he has made it. But it's another, I know so many artists like that, and I'm sure you know many actors like that, yeah. who are really good at what they do. They just haven't had that lottery win yeah. or that luck opportunity. Because most people think that, like, believe in yourself and you can make it. Yeah. Just do you, you know? It's all bullshit. You can believe in yourself and you can even be insanely talented. But if the fucking gods don't collide, if luck isn't on your side, you're a backup singer for Taylor Swift forever. Yeah. You're a better singer than Taylor Swift. Yeah. You're a better person than Taylor Swift and you weren't born into that uh, um, opportunity. But it is what it is. And that's the nuance of success, creativity and life. And I mean, this is the, the, the thing that I really... I, I'm glad I've let go of it now, but when I was trying to develop the 14 Factory and I was reading all these kind of um, motivational speech books, you know, you know, how to make it in the world, how to get rich, you know, how to be, you know, I was no, reading. Not specific to the art world, like Malcolm Gladwell type yeah, things. Yeah, I love yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, you know, yeah. you know out, outliers and all these things. But I, but I was really like, and I, this great podcast I used to listen to called um, How I Built This. Okay. Um, interviews with entrepreneurs that became successful. So you, the, the guy would interview people who built Airbnb and Uber and Spanx and whatever. Got it. And uh, so, I, you know, I really, you know, tried to learn from this and, and apply it. But, but more and more I realized success is so nuanced. It's so random and luck 
is far greater than effort and talent. And um, it's been a wake-up call for me because um, I think I'm quite talented. <laughs> and I'm, You're, you, I mean, I'm hard work and persistent. But I am I a great success? Not yet. Maybe soon. Maybe one day. I, I, you are in, you know, I was talking to my father about how excited I am to interview you. And, and the closest thing that I get to say, and I'm, I'm not trying to literally metaphorically jerk you off here, but it's like it's like me getting to talk to, to a Shakespeare or to a Picasso because I believe in your work and your vision and... I, I I wish my brain worked in the way your brain works. And I know that this podcast, whether it's, you know, when I do it air it in the, in the coming weeks or whether this is in a year from now on the 14th factory, hopefully, you know, it does have its next iteration. It goes on, you know, you are the future, Simon. And I'm curious, I, 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 before we, we dig in the 14th factory, I realized um, one of the things that I always ask every artist and every guest that I forgot to ask you is in in the last episode we were speaking about your journey and moving to Hong Kong and getting into this. Was there anyone that that shepherded you or mentored you or, or kind of was your north star as you started to find your style and your voice? Like who was? was well, I have there to be careful. I have to be careful what I say, right? Because at the moment I'm really in the struggle. I'm raising money. Yeah. I'm dealing with investors. I've had a hundred no's this year. So I'm feeling quite exhausted and quite, um, you know, a bit sorry for myself. And and that's why after we our last conversation, I, I sort of thought, God, you've got to be careful what you say here. Because a question like that, you know, has anyone mentored you or guided you? If I really think back, I've been so lucky that so many people have bought me dinner, gave me a cuddle, told me everything will be all right, asked if I need help, um, but, but equally, I, I suppose practically, I've always really needed a uh, partner in terms of business development practicalities. I've always needed a, a, an actual manager, something like that, you know, mm -hmm. um, someone that would, a father, you know, someone that would actually, you know, uh, be my big brother and just keep an eye on me. But, I, but definitely, have I had people that have tried to help and advise and bought me dinner? 100%. Just last week, my friend Doug took me out for a drink and just gave me a slap on the back and he's in the intelligence business. So I can't name him. Yeah. <laughs> I can't name his surname, but, uh, but just, you know, again, what people like that are very fucking smart, very high level who are willing to take my call, buy me lunch, give me a hug and say, everything's all right, brother. I've got you. Yeah. So yes, there are many people in my life. I should be very grateful to. And, uh, and I suppose one of the reasons I'm so persistent is because I feel a huge debt to people took my phone call and gave me a hug. Yeah. So I'm very conscious of that, right? And, but, but I'm also frustrated that I just, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still trying to raise money and do the deal and build a new project. And, you know, I built my project. We talked last time about- uh, Yeah, so we, we picked up, uh, we ended with like, so whilst the, the JP Morgan building fell apart, you got a phone call to go to LA, you started West, worked your way East, Found a place in Lincoln Heights, and okay. and, right. and and that's where we that's where we ended. We'll get back to the, the practical story. I think what I was about to dive into at the end of our last conversation was simply some of the really interesting anecdotes around building the 14 factory in LA in this you know hundred year old yeah. scrappy old building. One of the really interesting things, one of the most popular things in the exhibition was a recreation of a set piece from 2001: A Space Odyssey. Kubrick's one Stanley of the Kubrick's. most iconic film. 
And I, I grew up, so, you know, one of the most inspiring things when I was a child was Star Wars and, and then Blade Runner and then 2001 A Space Odyssey, which of course was in the late 60s. So you did have a personal relationship with Kubrick in the film and, and his oh, work? Obsessed. Obsessed. Yeah. obsessed with Ridley Scott, obsessed with Stanley Kubrick. Oh, really? I wouldn't have guessed that. Wow, Alien? Yeah, and if I had to go top 10, yeah, it would be There Will Be Blood. Yeah, uh, Paul Anderson, I mean. Blade Runner, yeah. Ridley Scott, Alien, um, Star, Empire Strikes Back, not Star Yeah. Uh, but science fiction is a big part of my life. So, when I was developing the exhibition, 14 Factory, and I was had this underlying narrative, this blueprint, which we talked about, you know, this kind of hero myth structure, the uh, beginning, middle, and end, the, the hero narrative that's taken from Star Wars, Harry yeah. Potter, Homer's Odyssey, um, Wizard of Oz, you know. So I had these 14 elements, and each one represented a part of the Oh, heroes. that's where the name came from, the 14th Factory. It was 14 elements. Yeah, no, actually, the, the reason it's called the 14th Factory is because in the 19th century in, um, Asia, in, in Guangzhou, southern China, there was yeah. a, um, a neighborhood called 13 Factories. The 13 Factories of Canton, which is now Guangzhou, uh, was the only, only legal trading port for Western entities. Wow. So the 13 Factories district was literally 13 warehouse buildings and one was owned by the British, one by the Portuguese, one by the Dutch, one by the Americans, et cetera, et cetera. That was the only place Westerners could trade with the Qing dynasty in the 18th and 19th century, because all the borders to China were closed. Um, you know, xenophobia and the, the fear of um, fracture, you know, the fracture of um, China. Yeah. Um, so the, the Westerners were trading opium through this district. And they were, in exchange, getting silk, tea, a porcelain. Uh, but, of course, the opium trade caused large amounts of the population in China to become drug addicts. And the Qing Emperor, which you would know, everyone knows the Qing Emperor because there was a movie called The Last Emperor. Mm. Um, That's which, not the Christian Bill Steven Spielberg movie, is it? Yeah, when he was a child. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I know the film, yeah. That's the movie. Yeah. Yeah, my dear friend did all the, Colleen did all the uh, costume for that. Uh, Colette, sorry. Anyway, um, <clears throat> sorry, I'd segue there. The point is that the, the Chinese emperor went to war with the British over the opium trade because mm -hmm. of this little neighborhood, because of the drug trade. And there was a war in 1841 called the Opium War. Yeah. And there were two more wars after that. And when that war was concluded, the British won. And in an unfair treaty, the British forced China to sign. They opened the borders to China, you know, Shanghai and Macau and all those places. But they also won the territory of Hong Kong as their own colony yeah. in China. And that treaty came to an end in 1997, which is when I arrived in Hong Kong. Wow. So... I was fascinated by that history. I was fascinated by that tension between the border, the borderless, the reinforcement of border, and then what was going on in the world a few years ago, which is still going on with refugee crisis. And, yeah. you know, is that what made you seek out Hong Kong versus any other city? Was that no, that no, frog? No, I really came here just accidentally because I was okay. broke. And it was a British colony, so I could work here without a visa. 
Ah, okay, okay, great. Off the plane, get by a job, same day I arrive. Is what yeah. I did. But it also, because that, that history, that tension between nations, expansion and contraction of border, is in my personal history as a, as a, a part Armenian, uh, because, uh, you know, my great-great-grandparents were refugees from Armenia. Uh, you know, my grandparents on my mother's side were, were Polish, and they, they were um, Nazi slaves. They were in the prison camps, you know, and digging graves. So, so this is, you know, that's in my blood. So I find all this stuff fascinating, you know, the reimposition of national identity and the, uh, you know, the crisis of refugee. I mean, it's in my blood, though I, of course, have not suffered. I grew up in England. Uh, you know, not not privileged in a in a sort of financial sense, but I, you know, at least I had a mum and dad and uh, safe, relatively safe home. And um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm, I dived. Oh no, no there, I, I'm a history buff. I love this. This is incredible. Keep going, please. Yeah. Don't stop. Anyway, the point is, fast forward, and then um, so therefore, the name of the 14 Factory ties into not only my personal history yours and everyone else's because everyone understands that we all come from really complex backgrounds yeah histories that can be quite often unfair colonial um, empires yeah look at what's going on in israel and palestine right yeah. now and, you know, it's just it's uncomfortable for everybody and you have to be careful what you say because it's going to offend someone oh god you can't say anything you, you can't you say really... anything about anything anymore and 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 you should be careful what you say because you don't understand what people are going through and the problems no. they've had to deal with. And um, you know, I you know, I was talking to my friend Grace last night, who's a, a Chinese woman in, in industry in Denmark. Yeah, and he was discussing the racism that she's received from white men in Denmark, and and it's wow. like, oh, damn it, I'm so. She's like one of my best friends. I've just felt such pain that she'd received this kind of judgment as a woman and as yeah. a. Child as a Chinese one. And, and it, it was it, it, particularly Asian hate that a phenomenon that we're seeing rise around the world against. Uh, right, right. Yeah. So if I say, oh, look at what's going on in Israel and Palestine. Yeah. What the fuck do I know? Why am I getting involved? But I do know that some people have a big gun and some people have a small gun. Yeah. I think that's obvious for everyone to see. But anyway, yeah. let's move on because, you know, I don't know. No. Neither of us have the answer, and we're here to talk about it. Yeah. Just got yeah. to be careful, man. Yeah, totally, man. Well, so you get this Lincoln Heights space, right? And originally the concept was, you know, right. 10,000 10, or whatever the address is for Penn. That yeah. doesn't work yeah. out. You get fucked in that moment. Right. You know what is right? The problem is when you when – you, we talk about nuance. The minute you touch on some of these things that are really quite sensitive, I'm a sensitive person. Yeah, we're sensitive artists, man. And it just, those kind of things can trigger me, like talking about, you know, that, that kind of nuance and the, the I apologize. I, I, that's the last thing I want to do is, no, I, yeah. No, I don't have to apologize, but it's just, I apologize because I think I'm too sensitive. I get upset when people, like, you know, when Black Lives Matter, is, I get so involved and upset and I've, I have a lot of black friends and I'm, I me feel too. that pain and just, we're, I just. Well, that's why we're, you know, we're in this, man. We're sensitive artists and we care about, about humans and the, and the essence of being and what it means to be human and what it means to connect. And that's, that's what art is. And it's, I oh, mean. Uh, it, I just love everyone, man. I just love yeah. I just read this, that brilliant book, Humankind. I haven't read it. Is it good? That's oh, fantastic. It's the, the truth about, are people really good or are they bad inherently? Yeah. And then, the humankind is really a, almost an academic study on. Do they answer it? Uh, I got to read it now. But it's amazing. The answer is, spoiler alert, people are inherently good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It is, it is 
environmental and nurture and distraction and circumstance. Was it John Locke who said humans are born blank slates, you know? I, 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 well, I, I think people are born with absolute goodness in them. Yeah. Because I think we as a species, like some, um, you know, um, apes, there are some uh, monkeys and apes like chimpanzees that can be very violent. Yeah. But there's a lot of them that aren't much violence at all, that are really friendly. No. And, 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 love, and love masturbating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are species that will inherit, inherit a, um, an orphan um, in, in their, within their species, penguins. Yeah. And, uh, is, uh, but but in, in monkey species, they get a bad rap because um, Jane Goodall, who really talked about chimpanzees and gorillas, hid chimpanzees uh, cannibalizing and murdering each other. Yeah. The chimpanzees are not all monkeys, they're not all apes. Yeah. They're, they're a pretty angry group, but there are lots of um, like, uh, bonobos and other and other examples who are really, really loving and will take on an orphan and, and they're really friendly and they're all cuddly. There's, I think we humans, and the book seems to uh, endorse or reaffirm this, yeah. that we're actually born quite kind and quite good. And, um, and uh, but, but when populations get large, um, it makes things quite complicated. Yeah, complicated people. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about that, about, yeah. you know, um, um, sort of towns that, that have a sort of 150 people-ish yeah. seem to have a very good outcome because everybody knows each other and therefore everyone's held accountable and everyone feels a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. But when populations go, why are we talking about this? I, I not- Dude, this is life. This is what I, I, I'm here to do. I don't care. I'm talking to Picasso, bro. You know, man, I, I want to hear everything he has to say. But all right, if you want to get back on... Let's go back. So we really right. went on... So I, I spoke about this in the last podcast, and and uh, for those who are not familiar, this uh, critic, one of the foremost critics, Nicholas Bouillard, wrote a book on relational aesthetics and relational art and how the subject can become the experience of the human in the viewing experience in the gallery, and that the relational between the traditional piece and mm-hmm. so, and and viewer is shifted and subjugated and changed by the space and a million different factors. And for those looking for a quicker, funnier summary, watch The Square with Dominic West. It's, it's an awesome film. But talk to me about, you have all these concepts for this room and everything, or for these rooms, I should say, and yeah. all these different spaces that you originally had become, um, you know, don't work out and suddenly you have a new space does this shift the idea of of how you're going to have people interact what's going to come first what's going to come second because yeah if i'm wrong there there is a linear journey to the 14th factory right yeah so rewinding i'm sorry we went off on a bit of tangent then but um yeah so the 14th factory um even pre-los angeles and all the ups and downs we've been through so probably three or four years before it existed, it already had a very uh, cohesive script. Now, this narrative, which we talked about Carl Jung and Nietzsche and yeah. Joseph Campbell, and, and then I'd already sought out the artists and knew who I wanted to work with, and I already knew what those elements were, right? these 14 pieces. Yeah. We went on a sideway there because we, you thought the 14th was 14 pieces. Yeah. It's actually with the history of China and the West, uh, which is a, you know, a recurring sort of tension that goes on in the world for thousands of years, right? So um, the 14 elements were defined clearly a long, long time before the LA show. So I knew that there had to be a fight, car crash, 
a, a reward, a crown or a medal. Uh, there needed to be a space of growth, like garden. So soil, yeah. Country, yeah. Right? And I'd, I'd sketched those all out. Then I'd found the artist, then I scripted it. And then we you know, went through all these ups and downs with the practicalities of money and space. And we arrived in Los Angeles. But when we were in LA and we finally found that building in Lincoln Heights, I knew what every element was going to be. And I just had to shuffle them around to fit within the space yeah. and subdivide the space or, or break up the space to, to make each element work. And then it was literally a little blueprint, a little sketch that went to the production people on off went, and then we built it. And then by the time, but just before we opened, which was I think in 2017. Yeah, 2017, yeah, yeah. We basically had run out of money already. So that was on zero. On before a, before day one, Lincoln Flight yeah, Heights. So, yeah. so before we could really do any kind of PR or marketing, um, we had to cut everything, meaning uh, any excess budget. So no staff, no no janitors, um, and yeah, no PR or marketing. And, and no housing had, for you as well, right? No housing, yeah, yeah. So it was really interesting. We were very lucky that we met people uh, like there was a group called Confluence who were like a kind of PR marketing guys. And they just said, don't worry about it. Give me a painting and we'll do the work for free. Another one was called uh, Bold PR. And we did similar deals where people basically work for nothing for the fun of it or as favors to just at least try and, you know, let someone know that this thing was about to open like the week yeah. in a kind of week. Yeah. So when we opened, I remember it was really weird because I was sleeping upstairs. The day of the opening, I couldn't get any sponsorship for like alcohol or a bar or stuff this or anything. March 2017, just to set the yeah. date, right? Yeah. Is that right? Or We had an opening where we basically just sent out an email and some friends sent out an email and people had to bring their own alcohol because we didn't have a bar. I remember that now. Yeah. And, and people just turned up with crates of beer. And I was, what was funny was, so quite a, a few hundred people showed up. It wasn't like, you know, some crazy, you know, concert. Coachella. <laughs> yeah. Some hundreds of people that heard about it, not because of me, but from people in LA that we'd met and said, I'll tell my friends. Yeah. So it was a really lovely evening. But I remember, like, bumping into this guy who'd, run across the room to say, oh, hey, I heard you're the artist. Can I talk to you? Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, God, it's so nice to meet you. This is amazing. It's amazing what you're doing. It's amazing. And um, I said, oh, what do you do? And he said, oh, I own some hotels in Los Angeles. And I went, fucking hell, can I get a free hotel room? Because I'm sleeping upstairs. And he said, ha, 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 are you joking? I said, no, no, I'll show you my mattress upstairs. He said, I own this uh, hotel. It's called The Farmer's Daughter. You're staying there tonight. Wow. And truth to his word, I stayed there for like a month. No way. What a bro. That's incredible. Can, nice guy, can, right? can you name him? You know, I don't remember his name now because I only met him once. That oh, one okay. Time. But when I turned up at the farmer's daughter in downtown LA, I got get quite where the address is now. Oh, God, I should be more uh, considerate. But farmer's, farmer's daughter. Farmer's daughter. We'll plug it. I'll put a link. It. Yeah. That yeah. night, and there was a room and a bottle of champagne sorted. I didn't pay a fucking dollar. Oh, so I stayed there for a few weeks and then the same thing happened again I met this wonderful guy called Stefan who um, ran a hotel called The Line yeah I know The Line well I said oh and we became friends and he wanted to have a drink with me one night and he said oh you know where are you staying I said I'm staying at the farmer's daughter but I, I can't 
I don't want to like overuse the, um, he said, I, I'm, I'm the director of this place called The Line. You're staying with us for the next three months on me. And it was, wow. it was so suddenly all these wonderful things like that started happening. Yeah. So, so, so we opened the show and I think, you know, there was a couple of interesting things I wanted to share with you. So the building of the exhibition so complicated, these various elements. I had to go scouting in Mojave in Arizona for airplane parts. So I had to go around these airplane graveyards. Which is, the, is that the photo on your Instagram of you in the airplane graveyard? Yeah. Okay. So I bought, I bought around 50 airplane tails. So if it's okay, uh, while, while you're narrating, uh, I'm just going to insert some images here so people listening can see. So keep talking and I'll, I'll yeah. One of those yeah. challenges, the airplane was a challenge because I had this idea of, um, I'm really interested in sustainability. So I thought, you know, what, what, and, and one of the elements of the project was supposed to be about kind of um, death and rebirth and all these kind of, I won't get into the intellectual side too much, but needless to say, I came to the idea that I would buy a bunch of airplane tails and I would put them in a black pool and you couldn't tell if they were emerging or sinking, and they would look like sharp things lined up. And so it's weird when you have an idea and you go, hey, this is a really good idea, but then you've got to actually make it happen. Yeah. You've got to find an airplane graveyard somewhere in the world, yeah. somehow convince them to let you cut the tails off. Which makes the planes invaluable then, right? Because you're taking such a big piece of it. Yeah. Those graveyards are full of planes. They're valueless. Wow. And actually, the cost to recycle them is, 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 is more prohibitive than just letting them sit there. So it's, it's a, and, but also because of all kinds of issues and legalities, you can't, you're not really supposed to sell an airplane to a stranger. So yeah. we had to do all kinds of weird stuff to buy these big bits. Yeah. And some of them do get recycled, mostly to the Chinese aerospace industry, actually, interesting enough. But anyway, the point is when you, you have a little idea like that, and you get, then you dig into the practicalities of how do I get an airplane tail? Where do I get it from? How do I get it? How much does it cost? How do you cut it off? How yeah. do you transport it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is one example of 14 parts of the 14 factory that are really complicated. Another part was I wanted to have 300 Chinese factory workers fight each other in China. Yeah. So again, you've got to find 300 actors or, or well not even you're doing a, a proper casting you, you get a taste I, of my world <laughs> yeah. Chinese dudes find a warehouse essentially do it illegally because you couldn't get permission to do something like because of Chinese national security law yeah. find someone to shoot it do the soundtrack etc 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 and find the money to fund it all yeah so what people see in the show is oh wow airplane tells in a black hole oh 300 guys fighting in a video world. Oh, yeah. the Stanley Kubrick 2001 set piece. And go, wow, this is cool. And people have no idea how complicated and difficult all these things were to achieve. Yeah. And just as a further example of how unusual the 14 factories and some of those processes and problem-solving was, the aeroplane tails had to be in black water. So how do you make water black? Because I wanted it to look like an oil slip, right? Ah, oh, okay. Uh, so... So you, couldn't, so you couldn't see through the water. So there was a beautiful reflection. So you didn't know how deep the water was. So if you have a large pool of water in Los Angeles, Los Angeles has a mosquito problem and they love still dark water. Yeah. So what happens is the mosquitoes will 
greed in your pool, in your artwork, and suddenly everyone's getting bitten by mosquitoes. So I called the Los Angeles Fisheries, you know, department. Um, you know, I'm, I'm building a large pool of water that's dark using organic, organic dye, so it's not, it's not toxic. Toxic, yeah. And we're, we're worried about the mosquito problem because of still water. We know that this kind of water is breeding rare. They said, oh, there's a fish that we breed that loves dark still water and they love to eat mosquitoes. No so we, would, we will give you six fish and they're only a few inches long. They're tiny little things. We'll give you a few fish. Should be all right. By the end of the exhibition, there were 6,000 fish and we became one of the most successful mosquito eating fish breeding programs in Los Angeles. No way. Yeah. Turned up. We said, hey, we're closing the show. We got thousands of fucking fish. They were like, yeah. thank you, because we have difficulty breeding that many and we need them. And they, what they do is they took all these thousands of fish out of the 14th factory and then they would dump them in sort of still water, you know, in drains and in, uh, you know, parks, you know, and we had a part to play in reducing mo the mosquito problem in Los And Angeles. helping Mother Nature. That's incredible. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's so weird. But, but then people just go, hey, that's cool. Airplane tails. Yeah. Take a selfie and walk on. Yeah. It's, and the 2001 room is another great story. Because so let's talk about because that is the first, if I remember, that's the first room you, you, you encountered. And bear in mind, all of these things, when I designed the project, so I did not realize that selfies were a thing. Go I'm on. Pull, I'm pulling this up because I'm going to insert, don't worry, I'm going to insert images in here, but just for the viewers so I have a point of reference. Uh, here we go. Do, do, do. Hey, I'm just get a uh, Coke, Coca Cola or a beverage from the food. Okay, here we go. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is a picture of the Stanley Kubrick room. This is me in the Stanley Kubrick room. I'm going to insert these images in post. More Kubrick. This is some of Simon's work. And also, Simon, I got a funny one for you. Check this one out. Hey, pretty cool. <laughs> I recognize that guy. Very handsome. Yeah. But so if, if it's cool with you, uh, I don't know if you have any video, but I'll insert this as some of the dialogues going. Yeah. If he needs some um, footage, we can, we can supply, of course. Yeah. Cool. So killer. So you have the Kubrick so room. Kubrick room. So the Kubrick room is really interesting. So in the 14 parts, I needed a room that really represented transformation. And in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with it, at the end of the film, the protagonist or the spaceman um, ends up in this alien construct white room where he becomes old and then dies and then is, goes into the obelisk, the black, you know, obelisk which is the same dimensions as the pool, which the airplane tells sit in. Mm. Um, and then he's reborn as like a space baby. So, you know, that whole section of the film is about sort of the transformation or the, you know, moving on to another life or yeah. rebirth, whatever you want to call it. So I needed something in the exhibition that represented um, this transformation 
And that room was, I really just wanted to do something that felt like that room, a bright white space that was cleansing or, um, or abstract or unusual, make you, feel, make, make you feel disorientated or something like that. So I um, have an architect friend here called Paul Kemba, who has a twin brother called Johnny Kemba. Wow. And they have an architect firm called K plus K. And they're very reputable here in Asia because they're known for their, um, what would you call it, responsibility and sustainability in the materials they use in their projects. And they build big residential buildings and hotels and all kinds of things. But they're known for being um, the one architecture team that did and just take the money that actually was very cautious about who they work with and, and, and what they do. So they have a great reputation. They're lovely guys, and they're really funny. And if you ever go to their studios, they've got beautiful architectural studios, and they always insist on breaking a bottle of champagne, and you end up a bit tipsy after a meeting. So I've known them for a long time. We'd worked on a project previously, Hope and Glory, and they were extremely generous, and you know they charged me zero, essentially, and they're always happy to kind of hang out. So... They're one of the first people I went to when I was developing 14 Factory because we had to kind of work out a master plan and some, we had to come up with some renderings to show investors and this kind yeah. of stuff. So when I decided on this, this room, this white room, and the 2001 room was actually inside the large abstract black kind of physical yeah. sculpture work. So it's an enormous space. I mean, that, that area that was about 10,000 square feet, uh, so there's this kind of huge, explosive-looking, dark, black, intimidating structure. Yeah. The, the 2001 room is nestled inside it, you know, like a little egg in a nest. Yeah. And so when I went to them and I said, guys, I need some help because I am trying to come up with an idea for this kind of transformative, transform, tra my language, okay. transformative room um, that is a reference to the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, and this is the room from 2001. It's this bright white room. And Johnny said, can I stop you there? I went, uh, okay. And he went, just, can you give me one second? Okay. He said, just got to go to the fridge. Gets up off the meeting table. We're in like a formal conference with his team and my team. Goes to the fridge, comes back with a bottle of champagne. It's like two in the afternoon. Wow. Pops it. I'm like, what's going on? He says, just hang on. Pours everyone a glass of champagne. I'm like, what's going on? He said, <clears throat> my grandfather and my great uncle designed and built the original 2001 A Space Odyssey film. No way. I went, what? He said, yeah. My great uncle, who's still alive, Tony Graysmark, who still works at Pinewood Studios, designed and built the room that you want to reference. Wow. It's just... So serendipitous. So weird. Yeah. So I said, I said, but hang on. I said, because I've been, you know, researching this and Kubrick destroyed all the drawings and, yeah. and the models. I said, yeah. But my great uncle, who's 81, actually built the fucking room. I'll call him now and he'll tell you how he built it. What they did was working with their family. The grandfather had died. The great uncle was still alive, as were his sons, who all worked in the film industry and all worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey back in the late 60s. And they, together with Johnny and Paul Kemba, K plus K architects, were able to rebuild the blueprints 
for that particular set piece. And that's why we committed to just copy the fucking room from the ground up. Yeah. And there was this wonderful theater producer who that we met in um, LA that built all the fabric and the chairs. I've got to, I, I should do, I should give her a little promo, but I've forgotten what her Instagram is. There's Des Marley. Is a, um, we'll link it in the, in the description anyway, below. I'll, I'll send you a link. But um, she was so good because she managed to copy the chairs and the, 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 the bed coverings and all, all from that. images from the film or at the, uh, because of the uncle, were you able to get blueprints? Yeah, so the set designer had to work from uh, shots of film. Wow. Uh, and the architects basically kind of hand to eye from the film and then talking to their relatives, they worked out and created a brand new blueprint because there were no blueprints of the original room. So we built it just, we were just so amazed by this whole relationship and the story and yeah. the random, world, you know, it was so such serendipity. It was, it was a weird thing. We still laugh about it today. The weird thing was, of course, when we did the show in LA, it was so popular. That room in particular, people would line up to go in and get a selfie. The line, I mean, it was like two yeah. out, two, I mean, it, it went yeah. viral pretty quickly. No? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, it was wonderful that actually we had people who came who were very old, who'd been in the film or worked on the film. Wow. Like it was a real moment for them to stand in the room they hadn't seen for like 50 years. No So it was way. a really wonderful stories that came out of that particular piece. And after we um, closed LA, um, we'd met some people from the Smithsonian in Washington and they um, asked us if they could borrow it. So we actually sent it to the Smithsonian Space and Ornette or, or What's the word? Aeronaut Museum of Space in, uh, I, I, I've been there many times in DC. Yeah. I know well. And, and we rebuilt it in, in Washington. What? And, and did they let people go in again or did that time yeah, they- Again, people lined up all day. To go. Wow. And it was one of, one of the rare kind of art things they'd ever done at, at the Smithsonian. It was, and we, we went there and we did a speech and it was, the people at the Smithsonian were so fucking amazingly lovely and mind-blowingly kind. Yeah. And uh, we're still friends now to this day. Really interesting, but after that happened, or during it, during that, it was a year after, so it's 2018 that happened. We we got a really awful letter from the Warner Brothers, you know, going. Oh God, I can't uh, imagine. Oh, uh, you know, that is an IP infraction, and uh, we'd like to talk to you. They were nice. Yeah. So, but they were like, we'd like, can we can we have a chat? Oh because God. We went across the line there. Yeah. And I remember. I was so broke at the time because it was after the 14th factory, you know, and I burnt all my money. And um, so they said, so I, I jumped on this conference call. And I think it was me and the Warner Brothers executives and like a dozen lawyers. And they were like, hey, we love that you respect, you know, 2001 and Stanley Kubrick, but it's kind of our property. And, you know, I'm like, dude, do what you want. Sue the fuck out of me. Yeah, I made no money. I'm broke. I ran it as a non-profit. Yeah. The Smithsonian. I just, and I told them the story of my architect friends who designed it. I said, and they went, and to their credit, they said, hey, no problem. We've not taken any action. If you're going to do it again, let us know. And maybe we can work something out. So, um, fortunately, but it was quite intimidating at the time. But I just remember them going, oh, just to let you know, we've got our uh, intellectual property lawyer. We've got our um, film representative lawyer. You know, <laughs> oh. and I went, I've got me. Yeah. I've got a beer. I've got $12 in my bank account. What are you going to do? <laughs> Come at me. Oh, man. Yeah. So, Good luck with that. When that I said, thing- I said to them at the time, I said, look, 
why don't you fucking invest in me? Yeah. You know, and we can be partners. Yeah, what well, well, brought to you by Warner Brothers? You know what I mean? Like just, just petty cash to them. But I'm so curious then with those two PR firms, the opening, you had 100 guests. You know, obviously we live in the social media. You sell the Came, yeah, and because it, we didn't have, we said so we didn't have any formal marketing campaigns. There was no paid advertising because we couldn't afford it. And um, honestly, we just kind of opened the doors. I mean, by the time we opened, I was exhausted. We were very lucky that a lot of people volunteered to work for yeah. free uh, because we certainly couldn't afford to pay anyone. Uh, but literally, we we were already behind on rent, so the landlord was already threatening threatening us to close us down. So when we opened, we essentially any money that came in, and we were. We're only charging sort of 10 or 15 US dollars. Yeah, I remember that. So I paid $15 to come in. Yeah, yeah. and also when we opened, we had no permit because um, we couldn't get a permit for public to come and see the show. So the week before, um, we, were, we were told you will not get a license, you will not get a permit, you cannot open to the public. But luckily, the guy that was um, doing all our production and who nearly died in the process, I think. His name was Justin Dina. He's a really good friend. He runs a company called Drive Studios in Los Angeles. He was in the film business already. And he said, hey, I found a loophole. If you are not an exhibition, if you are a film set, you can open and anyone that comes in, they sign a waiver that they're happy to be filmed. And they will give you a donation of 10 or $15 for the privilege of being in the film. Wow. And that's what we did. So we had a letter that everyone had to sign when they came in saying, I'm an extra in the documentary. I remember it. I was like, oh, we might make a little cameo. Yeah. Away with it. And, um, but it meant that we basically had to have someone filming every day. So we were officially filming a documentary and the 14 factory was essentially a film set. It wasn't an exhibition. Wow. So we had this lovely guy that we met called Ryan Martinez, who is a, a, a teacher in, in Los Angeles in, in, in architecture. And he would just turn up every day. I don't know why. I still don't know why. I have 5,000 hours of footage. I was going to say that, but it's just it must be... Permanent mic the entire time, including the times where I was going... Why the fuck am I done with my life? <laughs> oh, man. I'm fucking broke. Yeah. It hates me. Oh, my God. What was I thinking? Yeah. Warner Brothers was suing me. You know, it was um, weird. Strangely, now that's becoming a proper documentary. So I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to go and see the rushes next week. But anyway, um, so we opened, broke. Landlord trying to close us down. So every dollar that came through, we had to feed straight to the landlord so he wouldn't lock the doors. Yeah. And every week or two, the fire department or the police would show up. And thank God, they were, we were very good on fire safety. So they would walk around and go, okay, what's going on? Oh, you know, it's a film set. Oh, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. Where's the fire extinguishers? Yeah, okay. The fire exit works, working. The lights working. The fire exit, yeah. All right. We're getting away with it. Just don't fuck it up. Don't do an all night rave. So rare because those those places just they live to ticket people for yeah, you know. But you know, fortunately we you know unlike a rave party you know we were not full of thousands of people losing their minds. So the the fire department would often come in when we were open and they would just see kids running around and you know all our health and safety was in line. So they just sort of ignored us really. And I remember 
you know, the mayor of Los Angeles came to the show because they called in advance and said, oh, the mayor's coming. And, um, you know, this kind of cavalcade of, of uh, Cadillacs and black SUVs yeah. came, came out and then the mayor comes in with all these security guys and they walk around the show and because when we opened, nobody knew about it, but slowly the crowd, the audience grew and grew and grew. So the first few weeks, it was empty. I remember I came back three times. And when I first was there, there was not a lot of people. I literally texted every single person in LA, my phone, Simon, saying, you have to come to this thing. Yes, that's what happened. Yeah. Like you told everyone, I've just seen something. You've got to see it. Yeah. And that's what happened. And it suddenly started to snowball. And then it extended beyond the local uh, audience, which is really the Lincoln Heights kind of community that were our first adopters. Then it was kind of hipsters, then some art people, a lot of art people initially came and kind of slagged it off and said, oh, this is just like selfie bullshit, this isn't art. Oh, God. But then a few very serious art people came along and said, this is actually really, really interesting. And yeah. actually you just dismissed it too quickly. Like when the LA Times came, they kind of wrote it off and said, oh, if you like selfies, you'll like this show. Oh, I never, met, I never met the person from the LA Times. I didn't speak to them. They didn't ask me what it meant. They just drifted through and saw the lines of people and dismissed it. And it was, that was quite disappointing. That yeah. No one took the time to ask me, who am I? How What's the I intention? Yeah. Why are there airplane tails and fish eating, fish eating mosquitoes? No one asked any of this stuff. But eventually it started to change. And then a lot of celebrities started coming. I was going to say and that. Yeah, you were probably one of those early adopters that stumbled across it. And just I like, did. And told your mates, fucking hell, this thing, you've got to come and see this thing. Yeah. It's yeah. not like a museum of ice cream. This no. I, I, I brought a crew and everyone was like, how the fuck did you find this? And I'm like, man, you know, I, I love art and I was researching it and I know about Simon. And then it just like, you know, kind of just yeah. sparked this whole war of people going. And then um, I'm curious, you know, talk to me about the relationship to the city of Los Angeles because it did yeah, get extended. So, yeah. Do you, do you, do you feel like it, it opened up itself, the city, you know? Yeah, it, it, it really did just kind of snowball, especially, I mean, we were only open for three, maybe four months max, but it really only started to gain momentum in the second or third month. So the first month or two, we were just so broke and, and we were fine. We were having a lovely time, but, you know, we were just, I mean, we, I just remember that we had to cut staff and we really only had volunteers. And um, fortunately, all those people, those volunteers are still very good friends today. But I remember cleaning the toilets, yeah. sweeping the floor every day. I remember vividly in the first month, I was, I was trying to sweep the car park. And we'd found these guys that were Armenians like me, who, who were ballet parkers. We basically said, right, we'll run the parking. And, um, and, oh, you're Armenian? We're Armenian? Okay, we're definitely doing the parking. You don't pay us anything. We charge the customer to park, and we'll give you a little bit of the, the fee. We'll split the profit, basically. Yeah. And then they took me to, to, to the Armenian community and had dinner and everything. But I remember one day I was sweeping the car park because it was just very dusty and dirty. And uh, this guy taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, are you Simon Birch? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so because this ballet guy, this Armenian guy's, they said, you're like their brother, and you're the fucking artist? And I said, yeah. I said, why are you sweeping the car park? I said, it's fucking dirty. He says, I've never been to an art exhibition before. I've never met an artist before. 
I've definitely not met a fucking artist who's sweeping the floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, look at you. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Keeping right. it humble. That's what we do here on this show. I honestly, love it. Honestly, Ryan, I didn't care. I, I don't, I've, I, I really enjoyed those days that I'd actually somehow, after years of struggle, built this beautiful exhibition and um, attracted these wonderful people that were happy to run the reception for free, yeah. build the show for cheap, give me a discount on my lunch, give me a free hotel room. I couldn't have been happier. I didn't yeah. care if nobody saw it because I did something with my pathetic fucking life. I actually did something. Against all every obstacle that oh. could have ever happened in every art oh. in the world. I mean, you, your reaction when you said you saw it a few times and told your friends, that was my reaction. I'm like, this is a great show. I'm yeah. going to tell you. So, I wish I was smarter in my life, that I was better at business and that I, I don't know, found a, a, you know, we talked about mentors. And so I wish I'd found that partner or business person that could have elevated it further. But anyway, it is what it is and no hard feelings. But for sure, there was a period where it suddenly started accelerating and people like yourself told people and it just suddenly snowballed. And then, yes, you know, then, you know, um, Will I Am and Usher, Usher, who was a wonderful guy yeah. who, you know, did a whole story about 14 Factory and Gary Oldman, the, the actor. I mean, yeah. all these Sasha Gray, you know, yeah. Oh, Sasha Gray, I'd met her before. She's yeah. such a lovely human being. Yeah. And you know, I met her, I didn't know she was a porn star. I didn't know. Um, oh, really? <laughs> she was there when I was there. So she I, was like. Uh, yeah, she was a funny one because, um, I actually had dinner with my buddy one night and in Los Angeles many years before. And um, I sat next to this, you know, really bright, young, beautiful woman. I'm like, oh, hey, what's your name, Sasha? I'm Simon. Oh, what do you do? She said, oh, I'm in movies. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I said, have you been in anything I've seen? She's like, oh, I don't know. You know, what do you like to watch? Science fiction. I said, no, I don't think I've been in many science fiction films. I said, okay, well, good luck with your career. Um, you know, um, uh, how, how many films did you make? She said, oh, about a hundred and something. I went, what? Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I just kind of thought she was joking. Yeah. I got, got home. I was saying with a friend in LA, I said, God, I met this wonderful woman tonight. Her name's Sasha Gray. She's the coolest person I've ever met. She said she's made a hundred movies. You live in LA. Have you ever heard of her? And he went, I need to get online and show you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Sasha, still my friend today. She's a fucking good person. I was Badass. Love, love Sasha. She's Much love to Sasha. And, yeah, and, so, and yeah, I'm curious, let, let's touch on that. So obviously LA is Hollywood and you have this thing and for the first two months it's rough and it's word of mouth and people start to come when the social media and the celebrity thing starts to happen. Does that help you? Well, um, honestly, it, it all happened quite late in the, in the experience. So my, my daily experience was trying to run the show and, um, you know, just keep it alive. So I was. And did you have an end term with the landlord or was it just month to month? Or? Eventually we were, we had enough um, uh, audience members that we could cover the rent. It was month to month. So there's no yeah. long leave. So we could cover the rent and we were surviving, definitely not thriving. And, um, uh, and I, I guess I, I was really enjoying all of it. And then I saw the numbers starting to grow and I suddenly started getting excited and then started meeting all these interesting people and people like you and 
Jared Leto and all these people sort of slept going, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Said, oh my God, I'm really onto something. Um, but then, but also, you know, there was this kind of pushback from some people sort of writing the project off as a kind of selfie fest, which is quite frustrating. Yeah. But honestly, I was so exhausted through all this. I, you know, I, I didn't really know what day it was, what was going on. It was all a bit of a blur. I mean, I, I'd been working on this for years. And once I got to LA and started developing the show and building it, I mean, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't have a day off for maybe a year or two. Yeah. So, you know, I guess at that point I was in a bit of a blur. And, and you know, we talked about the mayor turning up. Yeah. And the end of that anecdote about the mayor coming was, I ended up at dinner with him a day or two later. Yeah, and, so he was a uh, fan. Yeah, Eric Garcetti. And I said, yeah. hey, hey, man, you know, um, you're the mayor, right? So, yeah, he said, yeah. He said, he said, I want to thank you for bringing this show to LA. It's brilliant. And I said, you know, we don't have a permit. So you're the mayor. Could we get a permit? He said, yeah, you got the keys for he said, is any you open? I said, yeah. He said, keep your mouth shut. You're okay. Don't need a permit. You're clearly open. Don't worry about it. And, you know, and that's, it was a very, any, that was an interesting. There, there are two other like rooms nice guy, I, I'd love to touch upon with you. Uh, the, I, obviously, because, you know, I know the Kubrick one was the most celebratory, but the one that I really responded to the most and I thought was the most fascinating was was the crash Ferrari room. Can we can you break that down? Because you'll do a much better job describing it than me. So I wanted um, we talked about the scene where there was 300 Chinese guys fighting, right? So they needed which was the, the visual projection room, right? So, so you needed I needed a video work that represented the final battle right? in the hero myth journey. There's always a battle. Yeah, the battle for Endor, you know, the Death Star, whatever it is. So at the end of any battle, there's always a conclusion. There is the destruction of the Death Star, yeah, yeah, or the killing of the wicked witch from the West, yeah. So I had the fight, but I needed the conclusion. So I needed destruction, ultimate destruction. So I, when I had become successful in my sort of early 30s and was a bit of an asshole, um, you know, when you grow up poor as a young man and you don't have the Nike sneakers or a flash yeah. car. As we really spoke about in the last episode, you had, you had the old shoes that you constantly wore, yeah. you know? So you crave that. So when you get the money, you're, you know, you're ignorant about money and you want to buy a flash car to show off. And when I became successful before I was sick, before I had cancer in 2008, I definitely, you know, when I was sponsored by Louis Vuitton and, you know, I, I bought a old Ferrari. A Testarossa? It was no, it's not even a good Ferrari. It's a Ferrari Mondial, which is one of the crappier Ferraris. But I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. I found a, I found a first generation where it's the only one in Hong Kong. And I cherished it, even though it was a nightmare and it broke down. And it only cost me about 30,000 US dollars. So it was very cheap wow. compared to a, a normal Ferrari. But after I survived cancer, somehow that car seemed distasteful. Um, and I thought, well, if I need an end scene to my fight, maybe I blow it up or I crash it. And maybe I crash it personally. I learn how to crash a car and I roll the fucking thing and destroy it. And wow. I put myself at risk and destroy this thing that I used to think made me bigger and better and stronger. The epitome of success, better. yeah, and, and status. And Why don't I undo that bullshit? Why don't I crash this 
luxury vehicle. And how do I make it more valuable? By destroying it and making a video work that not only I can enjoy, but everyone can enjoy the video work. And not only am I going to destroy it, why don't I destroy it at the place where I was really at the beginning of my life, where I was a construction worker working on a bridge in Hong Kong. I'm going to crash it underneath the bridge I used to work at in 1997. I'm going to film it beautifully. And then I'm going to take the wreckage and I'm going to cut it into 300 pieces. And each piece is going to be a specific shape and size relative to other artworks in the 14 factory. And I'm going to display not only the film, but the pieces of the Ferrari. And suddenly it's going to become more valuable, whether in finance, not financially, I mean, more valuable as an object. Yeah. And on all objects, whatever we say they are, is it valuable or not? You know, you, you have an object from your childhood that's valuable to you, but not valuable to anyone else. So, so that, that idea of upcycling something yeah. that society sees as valuable. And, and shedding yourself of, a, of a, 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 you know, I don't mean to be derogative, but like a superficial skin, you know, coming to, to this conclusion. Yeah. Put me down further. <laughs> no, man. I mean, you come at the end of this cancer thing and, and you, I, you yeah, know, I've to be, honest, to be honest, that work is kind of obtuse. It's actually quite immature. Like to, yo, I'm going to destroy my Ferrari. I lo- it was my favorite room. I spent the most time in that room. But you know, this is a long time ago. At the time I saw. I wasn't I was, trying to be mean. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I don't think it's all right. Say whatever you want. And I think it was partly cathartic. It was partly like, and you had hey, it on pedestals just to set the room. But ultimately what happened was, is I, they wouldn't let me crash it because there's no insurance for it. Yeah. So it wasn't that I said, I don't care if I die, it's fine. It was more to do that other people could be held responsible for allowing it to happen because it was being filmed. So eventually what we did is uh, we used uh, a stuntman who's very well known in Hong Kong and uh, because actually the crashing of the car is way more complicated than I realized. It's not just like drive fast and turn the wheel. No, no. You have to prep the car. You have to put in these large air compressors into it because the car is low and flat, so it won't roll. So you have to force it to roll. So you put all these devices and engineering into it. Like so Michael when, Bay style. Wow. Yeah, so it's like you only have one shot. So the, the driver had to drive it at a certain speed and it was a black setting. What was the location? Yeah, under the Ching Ma Bridge in Hong Kong, which is the bridge I used to work at in 1907. Okay. So the driver had to, so you had to prep the car, you had to drive it at a certain speed, turn the wheel and hit a button all at the same time, which would pop the car over. And you had multiple cameras. And it was, it was a weird day because we'd filmed it at night. So we, I specifically wanted it to be nighttime. So yeah. there was a black. Oh, that's why it was black. Okay, got yeah, it. So you yeah. just had this, this red object spinning through space. Yeah. Just like in 2001, the beginning of the film, where one of the chimpanzees throws a bone and then it becomes the spaceship spinning. Yeah, right. I know that so, scene. So, there was, there's, so, you know, this is typical of any part of the forcing factory when you dig into it. There's a relationship between the crashing of the car yeah. to the crown to the fight, to the black guy spinning in space, to the uh, garden, to the fight. Everything has a, has a connection to everything else. So it's really like a, you know, like when you like, look for a serial killer and you have all these pictures and you put the strings and you connect all the dots. Forcing patch is a bit like that. Everything 
very or very uh, on purpose, everything connects to everything in a certain way. So, so anyway, there was a weird day. So we had to shoot at the base of this bridge, obviously completely illegally. I was going to say, you, I, I imagine you can't get permits for something like that in China. Yeah. So, uh, so we had uh, uh, drones, and this is in the early days of drones. So there were, it was first generation drones. We had multiple cameras. My friend Eric Hu, who's a brilliant filmmaker, uh, and Scott Carthy, who's a British filmmaker, and uh, Wing Sha, who's this very famous uh, uh, one of Wing Ka, Wong Kar Wai's. Um, oh, film. wow. There were, you know, there were all these interesting people there, and a few of my mates, Peter and Nicolene and whatever, all hanging out and waiting for it to be dark enough. And the weirdest thing is when we started the shoot and the stuntman's there and someone's interviewing him and we're doing all the background photograph and get everything set up and marking the, the, the patch of land where, where he has to push the phone. The first time in history, or certainly the first time I've ever seen in Hong Kong, because it's in like February, so it's snowing. And it's the first time I've ever seen it and I've never seen it ever since. And I, I, I swear, if we didn't have it on camera, no one would believe it. It snowed in Hong Kong. The wow. first time I've ever seen it or I've heard of it. It's very, very weird. And no one would believe it, but anyone that yeah. was there would tell you for about 30 seconds, it was cold enough, it was snow. And then it went back to rain and then it stopped raining. And then we crashed the fuck out of that fucking car and wow. stood on top of it like a murdered, you know, elf, elephant or rhino or something, which I would never do and which yeah. I disagree with. <laughs> but it was weird that we just, we killed this beast and I don't know, it's such a weird thing that was in the air and yeah. it was beautiful and, and that was that. And it was a perfect confluence of events and killed the fucking Ferrari, good riddance, that fucking piece of shit. Honestly, Italians in the 1980s were clearly drunk because that car was such a nightmare. Um, and that was it, dead Ferrari and a great piece of video work. And when you see the film, which you did, you know, you sit in that room with multiple yeah. screens and out of the darkness with this beautiful soundtrack by Gary Gunn from, from New York, this, uh, this thing kind of rolls through the darkness. Yeah. Screen to screen. And, um, and uh, yeah, more valuable in death than a lot. And then all the pieces, you know, scattered about on, on varying degrees of, of heights of pedestals. Yeah. It's incredible. And then and then the, the next room I want to talk about is, is the crown room uh, where you had all the different, uh, you know, kind of what would you call them? Like the king crowns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of all varying degrees, which I loved. And, you know, that was at a time where Game of Thrones was really, you know, the biggest. Oh, that, yeah. No way, man. And also on pedestals and, you know, going yeah. back to everything that you said about, about, you know, colonialism. And, you know, you, you know, you know, film like, so if you remember in Star Wars, the original yeah. Star Wars, at the end of the movie, when they've killed the Death Star, uh, you know, they all get a medal. So there's Han and Luke. Right. Bus, yeah. And Leia gives them all a medal. So at, at the end of any good story, you, you get a, you get a reward, right? Be crowned. Yeah. But the truth is, the real reward is you free the galaxy. Yeah. So, but you do need a physical uh, object that represents reward. So I really looked into the history of reward, meaning medals and crowns and yeah. other items that show success. And, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of different designers and um, artists to think about that idea of a headpiece, crown, reward, medal, 
And we, we made some medals and we did all kinds of prototypes. And this was obviously, this is 2017, 2016, or 2015, actually, when we were really digging into it. And it was when 3D printing was just sort of beginning. Wow. And, uh, you know, you could print in um, copper or brass. Oh, it's brass, not copper. Uh, and you could gold plate it. But you could only print in small, um, small parts. You couldn't print the whole thing. And uh, now it's much more advanced, of course. But, you know, so we got very involved with some tech companies and, yeah, basically we started creating these rewards. Yeah. Um, and some of them were quite formal, like a traditional crown, and some were quite abstract. Yeah. And um, it was great fun experimenting. And actually we really just scratched the surface with the first project. But since then we've been looking at it far more deeply and conceptually about, you know, second skins and, and reward and, um, you know, uh, the relationship between... Um, yourself and um, the uh, how to improve the perception of yourself and anyway, it's that's a, a long boring intellectual conversation. And, and and there was a big kind of viral incident that happened where someone speaking of selfies was taking and knocked like four of them over, right? Yeah, I mean that's really a, um, a weird weird story and actually a very revealing story about media and bullshit, right? Yeah. So, because people so, tried accusing you of staging it, right? Uh, well, I don't know if that, well, if you say so, but I don't know about that. But, then, but um, actually, no, actually, yeah, maybe you're right. Because maybe I, think I remember people, people said it was like a Banksy type thing, like artist Simon Birch. Yeah, like, no, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember at the time, but, but I definitely for sure, post-project, people said, oh, did you do that to get more attention? But actually, it was really such a nothing incident. And unfortunately... I wish I could have benefited from it, but it was really like the last week or two of the exhibition. Oh, yeah. But um, what happened was I wasn't even in Los Angeles. I was in Hong Kong because I, my visa, you know, my tourist yeah, visa. Yeah, three, three years. Yeah. I had to a visa run. And I came back to Hong Kong and I was very stressed because, you know, we always, obviously always broke, um, but it was all so exciting. Basically, the staff called me and said, oh, God, oh, my God, um, uh, you know, someone knocked over one of the exhibits and they sent me like a, a video they'd taken not they'd, they basically showed me the security security footage yeah this um a chinese student had been taking a selfie she fell backwards and she knocked over one of the uh, uh kind of sculpt podiums that was uh, the sculpture and it dominoed and knocked them all over yeah and i went oh whatever it's the least of my problems i said any is it was there a problem? She said, Yeah, I mean, there's a hundred crowns in the room, and most of them are like this one wooden or, or they're metal, they're quite sturdy, yeah. Uh, so, no problem. But the, some of them are actually quite fragile because they were crowns that were made from granite, porcelain, marble, and all kinds yeah. of and my favorite one is I have two favorites one is black marble, and one is white marble. And we we have friends in China that helps us uh, make them, um, and that bizarrely out of all of the crowns, the only two that broke were those were my oh, favorite. They were actually probably the most expensive ones. But I said, look, don't, look, don't worry about it. And I said, look, what happened? And they said, oh, I was this girl, this Chinese student. She fell over, taking a selfie. And she's crying and she's really mortified. And I said, just, just don't worry about it. Let yeah. it go. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not our fault. We all made mistakes. We, you know, we all tripped. Should have bolted the fucking things down. But, you know. Yeah. Really thinking about that, right? Because we always had a staff in there, and 
that they would always say, hey, be careful walking around the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the podiums are not that good and the, and the crowds are fragile. So it was just one of those things. And I said, oh, well, it is what it is. Don't worry about it. No big deal. You know, we're not suing anyone. Just say to the girl, don't worry, you're fine. We're not charging you. It's no problem. And that was that. It was the end of it. Yeah. And I've got a buddy here in Hong Kong called Eddie Chung who runs a, um, a, a studio called Drum Studios. And he's one of my oldest mates. And I, I was in Hong Kong with him having a drink one night. I said, look, what happened to my exhibition? He said, he was laughing hysterically because he thinks I'm an idiot. And he said, fucking hell, that video, that's the kind of shit that goes viral. Yeah. And I said, it's slightly embarrassing, isn't it? He said, look, I'm your mate. Do me a favor. Let me publish that video. Wow. And I said, well, why? He said, because it'd be funny, man. Yeah. you're the rich man, you're a bro. I'm telling you now, this is funny. Let me just put it on something. I went, oh, I guess I, was, I, sh- I shouldn't have had a drink, should I? But I said, okay, fine. <laughs> I just posted it on some forum. I don't even know, Reddit or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I think that was it, yeah. A, a day later, there's seven news trucks parked outside of the 14 factory. I'm not even there. I remember TMZ posted about it. It was insane. Got, my phone's ringing and it's like, I forget who these uh, brands are, but you would you would know BuzzFeed. Is that yeah, BuzzFeed. Yeah, Vice. I'm sure all of them. Yeah, the New York Times. You know, obviously I know the New York Times is, but I didn't know who BuzzFeed were. And and suddenly I've got my phone is ringing for like a day, two or d- two days maybe. Yeah. And the, the news are in the 14 factory interviewing the staff. You know, what did you think when it happened? It just went viral. It had 7 million views in 24 hours. I'm going to have it play right now. Yeah, it's incredible. Did I make any money out of it? No. Did it improve my outcome? No. Did it? I think we were busier for a week and then we closed the next week anyway. So, wow. But it was, it was so weird. And the, but the funny thing was the, you know, the news uh, sort of, said oh it's like one of the most expensive selfies ever ever quarter of a million dollars worth of artwork yeah. destroyed it's all bullshit it's all fake news none of that was true oh really wow i didn't know that i mean the, the few things that were damaged uh we glued them back together maybe yeah. still. the things that were damaged were 3d printed so it could be reprinted and the only couple the marble works that were were really destroyed. I glued them back together personally, so I can still see the cranks. I'm quite sad about that, but I could always make them again. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's just an example of how the media can just bullshit. Yeah, clickbait, nipping. And, and, you know, it was, it's just remarkable. Remarkable. It's weird that how the world works and how things are discussed and exposed. And a week later, completely forgotten. Wow. And, and. Very silly, isn't it? Wait, I mean. And that, is that, is really, was that my life? Was that the thing? That was <laughs> no, <laughs> no not at all. <laughs> young woman accidentally damaged a couple of artworks and it went viral. What about how I made the 2001 room? How yeah. I destroyed my Ferrari? How I managed to convince 300 factory workers to fight each other? Yeah. How, et cetera, et cetera. This is the biggest part of my life is some, someone not so hurt. And it goes viral, <laughs> it's all a fucking lie. Isn't it? It's so weird. 21st life. century bullshit media. I mean, that's just the world we live in, Simon. It's crazy. I don't hate on it. I don't hate on it. It's all good. 
Maybe so die. To Maybe. summarize like a, a insane journey that was years and, and, and relatively about four months in Los Angeles, how did it feel when that closed? Where was your head at? When, it, when, we, when we were forced to close, and unfortunately, it was, I, I think it was just as we were getting going. Oh, you, so you would have stayed longer had the... Because we were really, really growing. Yeah, it was the most popular thing in the world at that point. I mean, people I know that have never been to a museum had, you know... But unfortunately, we were pushed out of the building, and that was that. And well, I'm, I'm sure you doubled their real estate value in, in your, you oh, know... Well, much more than that. Uh, but they didn't give a fuck about us. Um, of course. But, um, it was weird. It was a really mixed feeling because the last day of the exhibition, the director of the LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Arts, a guy called Michael Govan, is really one of my heroes because he created an institution in New York called Dia Beacon, D-I-A. Yeah, yeah. And he called me on the last day. He is great. I love it. It's right outside the city, yeah. Said, um, my curators have met you and... Uh, Christina, his creator, and a number of people. And most of his staff had been to the Fulton Factory and had badgered him and said, you've got to go to the Fulton Factory. He said, look, I'm Michael Govan, you don't know me. I said, I do know who you are. He said, could I come and have a look at the show? I said, actually, we're closing today. He said, look, I'm going to work, but I'm going to come at sort of seven o'clock. Could you please wait for me? I said, yeah, man, of course. I've been to Deer Beacon. I'll fucking wait yeah. for you. And I spent about two hours walking around the exhibition with him. And it's one of the most meaningful uh, conversations I've ever had in my life, where he explained his process of building Deer Beacon. And it was very similar to mine, that he'd been turned down by uh, rich people who needed money from and struggled against adversity and eventually succeeded. And he said, this project reminds me of building Deer Beacon. It is brilliant. It is, it is, you're ahead of the art world. I can see why some people hate on you, but please hang on in there. And I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to make sure everyone knows that I, Michael Govan, and the LACMA respect and support the 14 Factory, and we officially acquire one of your installations, and that's now in their permanent collection. No way. That's so beautiful. Wow, what a guy, man. And he's my friend now, and any time I email him, he emails me back. That's so beautiful, Simon. What a journey. Alive ever since, to be honest. Because I came out broke and, and, and stressed, and I was so, um, really so exhausted when I finished the 14 Factory. I have some very dear friends in England who said, look, why don't you just come and stay with us and recover? And they have a house in the countryside, a big nature town. And I got back to England, and I went to stay in this house, and I woke up the next day, and I couldn't breathe. And they called an ambulance, and I spent a week in ICU. And I had double pneumonia and the flu, like not like a cold, like the proper flu. I nearly died. A oh week my after God. The All the stress and everything, I'm sure, just weakened your immune system. That's, that's insane. And, and, uh, but I mean, you did it, brother. And it, it's, yeah. you did it. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know if we can talk about it or if you want to save it for another episode, but what's next, dude? So I, and we don't have to talk about it again. I, I realize that we've really spent a lot of time just going off on tangents and. No, dude, I I could do a million episodes with you. You're what welcome. What happened after that is, uh, so that when we that was 2017 when we closed up in the summer, and then I ended up in a hospital, uh, and I've spent the last three or four years 
finding space, losing space, finding money, losing money, working in London, working in New York, working in Hong Kong, just, and meeting some of the richest people in the world and being kicked in the face and just going through an entrepreneurial journey of, of trying to build the next 14 factory. Yeah. But I should be dead right now. I've had the lowest moments of my life where I wished that I had the old Ferrari so I could lock myself in a room and turn the engine off and die. I know the and, feeling well. And, and, and having my, my apartment flooded, being evicted, um, going to the ATM and going insufficient funds that are equally somehow being offered lifeline after lifeline. And I'm about to build the biggest art exhibition in the world at a quarter of a million square feet, which is 14 Factory Part Two. Wow. After a four year roller coaster, when I thought at the end of the 14 Factory, coming out of hospital, that this is the beginning of my life where people are going to go, Birch, I love the 14 Factory. What do you need? Yeah, that's what I thought. Your phone wouldn't Sadly, stop ringing. It was, hey, that show is great. See ya. It's been a weird process of meeting people incredibly rich and powerful. I shouldn't name names. Yeah. And finding out some truths and hypocrisies that we all kind of suspect, but it's very upsetting when you see it for real. So I'm still standing and I, I'm, I look great. You look incredible. And I see your CrossFit guy, you got the, the, the rogue in the, in the, yeah. Yeah. A lot of jujitsu. Uh, but uh, but I've had the last four years is enough for two more podcasts because it, it, I've I've just had some incredibly complex experiences with being an entrepreneur, trying to yeah. raise money, trying to put a business together to get valuation, to find money, to find space, dealing with people that have everything, give nothing, yeah. and definitely, as Oscar Wilde said, people that know the price of everything but the value of nothing, and then. COVID, as everyone has suffered from, other than some people who are very well insulated and very rich. And yeah, fortunately now I may be, may be in a place where I'm about to build the greatest exhibition of my life and maybe something very meaningful that can help a lot of people too. Um, but yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. Well, I think I think we need to put these episodes out and pick that one up and then do one live when that opens and I'm going to come. Yeah, well, the one we yeah, well, we definitely for, for sure. And, and maybe in one episode, if there's anyone listening that has a lot of money. <laughs> movie, well, hey, we'll do it. We're going to put these two episodes out and then we're going to do another one with Simon. You may be talking about it if you if you're open to it. If not, we'll do one when it opens live talking about the whole experience. Honestly, Ryan, I often, I, I tell my, my story often over dinner. And, you know, I meet, I meet so many interesting people. And, you know, I've been in the offices of Balenciaga and Gucci and Ridley yeah. Scott. I've been, I met so many interesting people in my life, rich and poor. Yeah. And I keep waiting for someone to go, oh my God, I'm behind, I'm backing you, dude. What do you need? Yeah. Still waiting, still waiting. So I'm going to put Simon's Instagram and his website and his PayPal and his Venmo right here. Everyone invest. I will donate a Simon. I believe you know what I'm thinking, right? Actually, because obviously people often say, Oh, what about Kickstarter, crowdfunding, NFTs, all these sort of things. And we're yeah. actually seeing all of these things concurrently as well as individual angel investors. I would say I've emailed 500 or more 
um, of the wealthiest people in the world over the last three years, including people like Mark Cuban and stuff like that. And, um, and it's really difficult to get access to a lot of these people. And uh, I think maybe now I've found a couple of people who are really, really good people and good investors. So it might be in a good place now, actually. Uh, so um, all's well that ends well. Yeah. But actually, one of the things that we're going to do once we announce is offer everyone and anyone at any price level a, a, a buy-in to the project so you can... So we make it democratically and, uh, you know, what do you call it, shared? Um, yeah. What do you call it, fractional, fractional shares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we have a plan that we will launch some kind of crowdfunding, um, uh, um, uh, um, yeah, initiative. Well, I so, saw you were, you were doing tattoos. So when I come to Hong Kong to visit what this is, I want a Simon Birch tattoo. I, I think you should actually have my face on your chest. <laughs> I'll do it, man. You know, it might just be the thing that breaks me in, you know? Fucking A, bro. Oh, Simon Birch. I have a friend who has his mother's face on his chest. Now, that's fucking weird. That uh, a little Oedipus Rex for me, but that's, you know, hey, yeah. man, to each their own. And uh, Simon, man, you are the future. You are everything. You inspired me. You've, you, this conversation is, is, is humbled me. It is, it is enlightened me. It is inspired me and it has it has really filled me with hope man because i i uh, Brian, i, I despair very enjoyable ramble and uh, good luck editing this because it's gone all over the place i it's going to be beautiful man and i'm going to send you everything before it goes live but let's do this again yeah, Ryan, in, in in the in the in the you know the commitment to risk publish whatever the fuck you want dude i love that i'm, I'm clipping that but uh Simon, I, from the bottom of my heart, words cannot express my gratitude. I believe in you. I believe in your work. I love you. I've enjoyed getting to know you, and I look forward to doing this many more times and hanging in person. And to the future, brother, it's going to be bright. It's going to be beautiful, and you're changing the world a day at a time. As much as I appreciate your gratitude, I'm equally grateful that someone's talked to me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I needed this more than you, man. I love you, brother. And uh, to be continued. All right, man. <laughs> if you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.